0: Good morning, church family. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter one. Three weeks ago and two weeks ago, the sermon was on three verses. Last week's was on two verses. This week's is on one verse. Uh, Don't worry, we will not be doing a sermon over zero verses next week. Uh, In fact, I think we may actually finish the the chapter next Sunday. We'll see. so for those of you that are wondering, when we're going to get into the actual vision that John had, it's actually going to be next week. Uh, and He's telling this story in his own time, but I'll tell you something that's been very encouraging uh, for me anyway, is as I've been studying this, j- just how much awesome theology is spelled out. It's revealed in the beginning of this book. You know, since we moved to McKinney, uh, it's, been, it's been almost, it's been a while. 17 years, maybe? I don't know. I've, I've read through Revelation um, at least 20 times since then, and um, I never realized how rich the introduction is. I mean, this is so, so deep. There's so much stuff. It's just good stuff. So uh, I hope you're going to stick with me today. We're going um, to read, and then we'll open with prayer. So I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Father, we ask this morning that every person here is ready and willing to receive your word. I pray that we are good soil, that your word may take root and bear fruit. I thank you for the power that's in your word. I thank you, God, that as we get into um, the last, I mean, here we are in the last book of the Bible, and um, it's... There's a lot of stuff in here that's hard to understand. I pray, Father, for wisdom for all of us as we go through this. But today's, today's passage is really not that hard to understand. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you will help us to be able to, uh, to think through these things and apply them to our lives, God. The world's getting darker. And that means that we can shine brighter. So I pray that we will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we talked a little bit about this before, but who is John, okay? He was one of the 12 apostles, right? Brother of James, son of Zebedee, you know, easy peasy. We've we've, we're all familiar with John, but he's also the author of five different books in the New Testament. He wrote the gospel that bears his name. It's typically, uh, I would say it's, it's the theologically deepest of the four Gospels. And in that book, he gave himself a title. We talked about it recently. Anybody remember what it was? He called himself the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, what a neat way to refer to oneself. The one that Jesus loved. That's, a, that's godly confidence. You know, to think of yourself primarily as someone whom Jesus loves, and, and I, I aspire to that. Um, so if I were to ask if y'all knew who John was you'd probably say, well naturally you know because he, he's someone that we've all been really familiar with because we've read the New Testament we've at least at least we've watched the chosen if we haven't read the New Testament um, but the real question that he answers in this verse is who is he to his readers and the the audience that's receiving this this letter also includes us and so John refers to himself in ways that seem to have uh, just as much connection to his readers as they do to him. So firstly, John calls himself their brother. Think about, well, what, what does that mean? You know, there's actually at least three ways to use the word brother or, or to understand brother in the New Testament. The first one is the most obvious, right? It's the, the fraternal sibling who shares at least one parent with you. Um, and the second one is, is figurative. And it means someone's countrymen, or more specifically, of the same ethnicity. Like Jews would often refer to one another as brothers, even if they didn't know each other. But the third usage that we, I think, most commonly see for the word, at least very commonly see, for the word brother is fellow believer. Okay, this is a person who shares our precious Christian faith. They are considered a brother or a sister. Now, why is that? You ever thought about that? There's an obvious reason. Same father. Thank you. We have the same father. Now, some might argue this is true for the whole human race, but Scripture indicates that only believers are actually children of God, okay? Now, if you have any questions about this point, please write down these Scriptures, okay? You got a little box there to write stuff in. John 1, verse 12, and Romans 8, verses 9 and 14, Okay? If you read these, you will see that it is Christ who gives us the right to become a child of God by belief in Him. And also that a person must have the Spirit indwelling them and must be keeping in step with the Spirit. Okay? So, so it is a common misnomer that we're all God's children. Okay? That is not scriptural. Okay that's the truth is not everyone is a child of God. In fact, Jesus makes a distinction. He says some are children of God while others are children of the devil. He says that in John chapter 8 verse 44 and Matthew 13 38. So we need to recognize that God's common grace is on all mankind, but his saving grace is only extended to those with faith. Now that said, once a person is born again by the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is a child of God and thus a brother or she a sister to everyone else who is a child of God. And this is, this is important, I think, for us to grasp because we sometimes, I think, lose sight of the fact that we are one family. We are one another's brothers and sisters. <laughs> Once again, no, no, plan between the two of us, but what Ron said this morning fits right into that. So clearly, God had a hand in it. Talking about we being united. So anyway, John identifies himself as a, a brother to those who are reading his words. So he's reminding them of this this filial, this this affection, this brotherly love that they ought to have towards him. Uh, and then he refers to himself next as their partner. Now, this, this is a really interesting word, um, in part because the connotation has really changed over the years. Um, someone, at one time, you would say someone was your partner if they were your partner in business, right? That was almost exclusively how it was, you know, you're in business with them usually willingly, right? Um, someone who, who took part in something with you. That's why you're partners, okay? Now, sometime in the 1990s, it became a code word for same-sex relationships. And then since then, it's become to encompass just about any romantic relationship other than the one sanctified by God, which is heterosexual marriage. Okay, now as such, the word has sadly become very disconnected from its original context, which meant fellow partaker. Fellow partaker. Okay, the Greek, uh, it's kind of a cool... Word. I'm going to explain why in just a second here, but the, the word is uh, sunkoinono, okay? sun which is a combination of two words. Whenever you hear uh, a Greek compound word that begins with a su sound, it usually is, is like how we would put ko at the beginning of a word. In other words, along with, okay? The second part of the word probably sounds familiar to anybody that's been around here for long because the Greek word uh, koinonia is, is translated usually fellowship in the English Bible, but it quite literally means participation. So the word translated partner means basically participator with or partaker in. Okay? So John is saying that he is he is partaking of the very same things that his audience is or his readers are. In such a way it almost feels as though they are undergoing the experience together and then he names three specific things and we're going to take a look at each one in turn okay first first John says that he is a partner in tribulation tribulation this is not a word that we use very often anymore in modern society but it is a great word you know a lot of christians they only use the word in reference to a period of great distress prior to the return of jesus but the word itself means trouble or suffering okay of course Trouble and suffering is something that every Christian should expect to deal with through the course of our lives simply because it's universal. Everybody experiences some struggling, some suffering, some difficulty. Everyone goes through trouble at one point or another, but John John is using it in a more particular way. Uh, I I wonder, honestly, if he flashed back uh, to to the moment that he and the other ten apostles that were remaining, Were seated, or reclining around the table with Jesus at the Passover, when Jesus told them, in this world, He said, you will have tribulation. I wonder if He thought about that. Now, this, this statement that Jesus made, in this world you have tribulation, that is a frustrating reality for everyone. But the context of the statement shows Jesus wasn't just talking about the struggles that everyone has to go through. He was talking about the difficulty that they were soon to experience as a result of being his disciples, and knowing that that grief and knowing that turmoil that they would be going through, and probably also knowing that almost all of them were going to be murdered for their faith. Jesus warned them about the troubles that were coming, but then he gives them that great hope. He says, "But take heart." I have overcome the world. This, this statement, this is a vital thing for you and for, for me to grab hold of. We need to take hold of this. We need to, to place, to inscribe this on the tablet of our hearts, that Christ has overcome the world. Jesus already won. At that point, he said, I have overcome, not I will, I have overcome the world. See, he made it through every temptation which is common to man, and he still successfully defeated sin. And this ought to be an encouragement for for anyone who ever deals with suffering for their Christian faith. You know, quick sidebar. Um, I think I've said this before. Hang on, I gotta make sure, here we go. What are we doing here? It's not going, there it goes, all right. All right, there we go. Suffering for their Christian faith. Um, It's been a little while since i mentioned this, so I'm just going to take a quick sidebar here, and you guys can bear with me. Um, Let's make sure, this is just a reminder, okay? Let's make sure that any suffering that we go through as Christians is legitimately because of our faith, and not because we're acting like jerks, okay? Are we on the same page? Okay. Sometimes people think that the rightness of what we believe gives us license to act terribly toward other people because they haven't had their eyes open to the truth yet. And so when they get, you know, when, when, when we get a negative response, we, we may think it's because we're Christians when in actuality it might be because we're being obnoxious. So we have to be careful about this. Now that said, persecution is a real thing, okay? People, people who, who are Christians have been seeing it pretty frequently, In some parts of the world, we were were watching uh, a documentary the other day, or kind of a mini-documentary, talking about North Korea. And and, and infamously, in North Korea, there was a two-year-old who was given a life sentence in prison because his parents were caught with a Bible. This has happened. That was actually big enough that even the mainstream news picked it up. But Somalia is currently right behind North Korea in their level of persecution, and even in India, in India, where they, they actually have a constitution that declares or proclaims that they have freedom of religion. They don't. You know, 2,228 churches were either attacked or shut down in India just, just in, in the past year. There's not that many churches in India. I know that, that may not sound like, oh, it's there's only 2,000. Hey, there's a billion people. There's not that many Christians. That is a big number. Suffering because of your allegiance to Jesus is becoming more common now than any time in the recent past. But here's the thing. We shouldn't be worried about it because the Lord himself has indicated to us that suffering for his sake is a blessing. You know, in Luke 22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Sorry, it's 622, not chapter 22. It says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I think that's so interesting. When you are mistreated for the name of Christ, you ought to be like, yes! That, that was my pathetic jump. You know, but, but you should be leaping. You should be excited because that's a sign that you belong to Christ. I don't think we always recognize that. You know, it's, your reward, he says, is great in heaven if you're persecuted for His name. First Peter, uh, it also tells us that the person who is suffering for Christ is done with sin. He said, not, not in the sense that they've achieved sinless perfection, but they have clearly chosen Christ over their own flesh. Receiving persecution and standing firm despite the pressure is a sign that a person truly belongs to the Lord, that they're being persecuted for his name's sake. Anyway, um, by saying that he is a partner in the tribulation, John is assuming that other believers are also dealing with persecution for Jesus. And we ought to be mentally prepared for this to happen. We ought to be preparing ourselves. We ought to be preparing our children. We ought to be preparing our grandchildren. Uh, Let's pray that God will provide what is necessary for all of us to remain faithful to him, no matter what comes. Because we also look forward to being partakers with John in the kingdom. Now I have a question. How many of you are looking forward to the kingdom of God? Next question, why? No, no wait, wait, think on it. Why are you looking forward to it? Isn't the kingdom of God in your midst? Didn't Jesus say that? Now, there's certainly a a coming kingdom as well, because there's a sense in which it's it's both here and not yet. Okay, we know that. Uh, God is going to make all things new. Christ himself, he's going to rule it. But Jesus told his followers that the kingdom of God is among them. And so there is a kingdom of Christ even now. Even now. Do we think about this often enough? You know, certainly Christians are looking forward to the return of our King, but, but do we recognize He is already here through His Holy Spirit that He's 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 placed in us, that's working in us. Friends, listen, when we are treated, uh, excuse me, when we are tempted to treat the kingdom as though um as as though it were only to come, I, I think we're really missing out on something important. One of the dumbest mistakes I ever made, this is a long list, by the way, um, but one of the dumbest mistakes I ever made was on a Dallas Christian College uh, choir tour trip. This is back in the 90s, the 1990s, before my son says anything. Um, we went to California in a couple of vans, and so we spent a whole lot of time driving across desert, basically. And um, Anyway, theres by the way, it was, it was on this trip that I learned that it was considered acceptable for a Bible college professor to... I have and play spades at the same time. Just saying. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, either on the way there or on the way back, we stopped at the Grand Canyon. And almost everyone got out and went into the park and enjoyed the natural beauty of the Grand Canyon, but I did not. In my mind, it just wasn't that big of a deal. And so I decided to sit in the van for a few hours and play cards with three other people that had probably all seen it before. And, yes. Do you know what the final score in that card game was? No. I don't remember. I don't remember any, I don't even remember what game we played, but I definitely remember not going to the Grand Canyon. And to this day, that's a source of regret. It was right there. All I had to do was spend a little tiny bit of money and time and energy, and I could have experienced this amazing once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. And instead, I sat in a van and I played cards. I could have experienced something amazing and beautiful and unforgettable. Now, why am I sharing this story? Because, friends, listen, when, when we finally walk through those pearly gates, or fly, however we get through, I don't want any of you precious people that God has placed under my care to look back at your lives and go, I missed it. God's kingdom really was in our midst the whole time, but I didn't recognize it. I was too focused on the mundane. Friends, while we wait for his kingdom to come in the future, let's participate in his kingdom now. Now. All right, back to John. He's also a partner with the other believers in patient endurance, patient endurance. What does that mean? It's interesting, the Greek word again, it's really interesting when you can go through and look at this stuff. It's a compound word that can actually be translated cheerful endurance. That's interesting. Now, those aren't words that normally go together, are they? Like jumbo shrimp, right? Or or vacation Bible school, for instance, Um, You know, they don't really fit. So how in the world, how are we expected to find joy, to experience joy and cheerfulness in the midst of terrible trials? You know, some of the Christians that John knew had been tortured, some had been killed, And even the ones that got off light, they probably lost property or they may have been ostracized by their families. So what could cause them to persevere in the midst of all this persecution? It was the same thing that kept Jesus on the cross. I mean, you've heard it wasn't really the nails, right? He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. Hebrews 12 says that he endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And we do very much the same thing. Jesus knew that the Father, through him, was bringing many sons to glory in his provincial kingdom. And the joy, the joy that's set before us, is that glory. And that's the sense in which we should be looking forward to the kingdom. Okay? We should be looking at the kingdom as it is right now in our midst, but we should also be looking forward because that's where a lot of our joy is going to come from. Do you see Do you see how the tribulation and the kingdom and, and the, the cheerful endurance all go together? What's really cool about all three of these, these things believers partake in, according to John, is they are all in Jesus. And so, so what does that mean? This is one of those times I called my dad and was like, okay, check this out for me because <laughs> He knows these things. Um, so I called him in on this one to see if, if the sentence structure meant that in Jesus applied to all three of those things, and it does, okay? Now, how so? When believers are experiencing any of these, whether it, it's, it's persecution or province or, or perseverance, it, it is always on his account, He allows tribulation to strengthen our faith. He allows that to draw us to Himself. He reveals His kingdom to spur us on to greater obedience and greater joy in spite of our suffering. And Jesus helps us to patiently endure the struggle in order that we might be sanctified and His name might be glorified. None of this happens outside of God's purview. Everything that happens, God either causes or allows. He is in charge. So the difficult things that we go through are to shape us into who He wants us to be. Now, not only do we partake of these things for His sake, we also partake of these things in His power. Anyone can suffer right? But not everyone suffers well, right? Even fewer suffer well blah, 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 while pointing to Jesus. That takes something special. God gives us the ability to suffer well and point to Jesus by placing His Holy Spirit in us, and we are not alone in it. We partake together now, in John's case, it's kind of interesting that that bond primarily existed only in spirit because of where he was. He says that, that he was on the island called Patmos on the count of the, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, so what was he doing there? I mean, according to, to church tradition, after the emperor Domitian tried to have John executed, which didn't work, he banished him instead to one of the most remote parts of the Roman Empire, and I'm not too sure about whether that's an accurate historical thing or whether it's, it's, it's kind of an urban legend. It seems like Domitian would have just tried a different form of execution. I don't know. But, but either way, John was in Patmos because he was in exile. Now, according to one source I read, this is, this is what happened to people that had a greater social status, whereas people with a low social status would probably end up getting life in a work camp. But despite being one of the the very disparaged Christians, John was so well-known, he was so well-loved that he was actually allowed to be exiled to a place that's been called the Greek island where the end of the world began. Of course, he was obviously still allowed to write letters, and he eventually returned. He came back after Domitian's death. But there's something really deep in the fact that John was in exile. Because in a sense, he, he was physically living out what his audience, his, his readers, were spiritually and culturally experiencing. You know, the, the main idea, in, in the main theme, I guess, in Peter's first letter to the churches was very similar to this. You know, um, I don't remember which verse it is, I didn't put it down, but uh, after identifying himself, I think it's in verse 1 or 2 of uh, First Peter, after saying who he is, Peter calls his audience, those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. In other words, um, those believers chosen by God who were scattered around the known world because of all the persecution that was going on. They basically were fleeing and going, and, and, and um, they're building communities of Christians in, in new places because they had been pushed out of where they were. Um, these are also, in a sense, physical exiles, because many of them, have been, they've been displaced from their homes. You know, um, a lot of them had, had found asylum with other Christians in other places. But in the next chapter, Peter shows that the term exiles means more than simply that. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He is appealing to their status of being not of this world as a reason not to participate in sinful behavior. Now, he's clearly not referring to their physical refugee status because that wouldn't make any sense. Okay? Peter is talking about their experience as God's people in an ungodly world who may be struggling with their, their social and spiritual banishment and loneliness. This is something Christians need to accept. It's something we need to be mentally prepared for. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to kick that statement around just for a minute because it, it's important. I don't know how many other places we're likely to hear this this week. Um, there will be some people who will not like you. Okay? Just in case you weren't aware of that. No matter how likable a guy or a gal you are, there will be some people that probably just won't like you. That's to be expected. Not everyone appeals to everyone else. But there may be some people in your life who will actually hate you because they hate God and they hate God's ways, and you remind them of Him. That's why it's a compliment. That's why you can rejoice and leap for joy. Well, really, it's because you have reward in heaven. That's what Jesus said. But it's still one of the things you can look at this and you can say, if that person hates me because I remind them of Jesus, that's powerful. That's encouraging. It's kind of a big compliment. As long as, again, as long as their fingers towards you are due to you living out your faith and not because you're being rude or obnoxious, okay? But here's an example from the news. This is fairly recent. Even if you only watch the mainstream media, um, and I hope you don't, only watch them, but but even if you only do, they normally ignore this type of thing, but, but but you probably still heard of this story, okay? Back in 2021, there were six pro-lifers who were arrested for peacefully demonstrating in a hallway of a building in front of the door of an abortion clinic, okay? And they were praying, they were, they were singing gospel songs, you know, um, they were trying to, to talk people. If people came in, they would talk to them very kindly. Um, and one of them, the guy, last name is Vaughn. You may have read about him. He, he was acting as kind of a liaison between the police and the protesters. So he was outside. Anyway, all of these people were arrested, which they probably expected. Okay, And the DOJ charged them under the FACE Act, which is the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act the law addresses and I'm putting this in quotes because this is what it actually says here violent threatening damaging and obstructive content or conduct excuse me intended to injure intimidate or interfere with the right to seek obtain or provide reproductive health services now you can shoot that down by saying that abortion is not a reproductive health service to begin with but anyway the, these christians including including a child and an elderly woman who is in a wheelchair they were singing and they were praying and they were peacefully talking to people. Now, they were blocking the door, okay? And thus, technically, yes, they were in violation of the law. But they are currently facing sentencing of up to ten and a half years and fines of a quarter million dollars plus each. Now, we got to wait and see how this plays out. What? Well, they haven't been sentenced yet, though, have they? Yeah, we got to see how this plays out as far as knowing whether they're going to get the max penalty or whatever they're going to do. But that's ridiculous. And there's a reason that this happened. This is an attempt to make an example out of Christians who gently but firmly prevented the death of preborn babies on that day. Now, their, their bravery is inspiring, and it reminds us we need to be prepared to be hated and mistreated for standing up for what is right, because our faith our faith does not share the principles of this world that we live in. This is not new to God's people, by the way. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, we read a long list of Old Testament saints who, who believed God's promises, and, and they, they suffered many indignities as a result. And, and the author of Hebrews wrote, Uh, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. What, what, What kind of homeland is he talking about? What? A heavenly homeland. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he continues. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had no opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Guys, this is awesome that's an incredibly encouraging statement. We are exiles because we don't really belong to this world. We we may be citizens of the United States of America, which is arguably still the most moral nation in the world, believe it or not. But our our ultimate home is the heavenly kingdom of God that we are being prepared for. And so let's not be afraid to be excluded on His account. Anyone who tries to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what Paul said all the way back in 2 Timothy 3.12. And in some cases, this may be due to the fact that, that man's law is wicked, as in the case of these pro-lifers. Did they violate the law? Technically, yes. Were they blocking the door to a place that's doing horrific things that are legal? Yes. Is that law horrible and should it have been overturned and was it recently? <laughs> yes. Have they gone far enough? with overturning that law? No, whole nother story. Anyway, I get, I get hot just thinking about it. Um, but in most cases, it, it may not have to do with the law, but simply the fact that the prince of this world does not like the message that we hold. And so he, detries, he, he he wants to destroy it. He tries every possible way to keep us from being able to spread the message. He wants to harm anyone who shares the message. And that's what happened to John. That's why John was on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You might remember, this is the exact same phrasing John used in verse 2. Uh, we talked about that about four weeks ago, or at least four Sundays ago, referring to, to, to what he was witness to. Okay? Here he's saying, that's the reason for his exile. Now we looked at that phrase back, um, back when I did the sermon on verses 1 through 3. So today I, I want to close with a summary okay, of how I interpret this. I believe that by the word of God... John is probably not talking about the the written words of the Old Testament because Christians receive persecution both from Jews and from Gentiles. I think he is referring to Christ himself who is called, he's referred to as the Logos Tom Theon, the Word of God, who was with God and who was God in the beginning. You know, Jesus didn't fit the, the mental picture that the Jews had of this coming Messiah. They were expecting something else. And so many of them, they didn't believe in him. They, they, they viewed him to be a false prophet. And in similar fashion, the Romans accused Christians alternately of atheism because they believed in, in only one God, which was akin to being an atheist, if you're a Roman. Um, or, or They were also accused of cannibalism because they practiced communion. And they are accused of treason, because they only worshipped one Lord. They were were not willing to, to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. So practicing faith in Jesus Christ and proclaiming Him as God was, in fact, the reason John was exiled. But it was probably the testimony of Jesus which brought even more hatred upon John and other believers for the same reason that it does today. You know, John declared that that the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus claimed about himself. Jesus, Jesus proclaimed that he was one with God. He proclaimed that he was the Savior of mankind. He promised that he was going to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And then he proved the second, or proved the first thing by doing the second thing. The message of this is his gospel, which the world hates because they want to believe they can trust in some other person or some other system or a false faith, their own inherent goodness or a pattern of law keeping. But Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. His servant Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith and this not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. The the world does not like the message that Jesus, because of His his divinity and death and resurrection, is is the sole way of salvation. They hate that. They hate that exclusivity. It's hard to stomach. Learning that you're really... You know there's this, this phrase that's been going around a lot, I am enough. No, you're not. <laughs> None of us are. I mean, you might be enough in the sense that, you know, that, that you're, you're uh, worthy of other people's love, but apart from Christ, you are not enough for God. You're not. Apart from Christ, we are all considered wicked sinners, but because of Christ... We are viewed as sons of God. Even you ladies, you're viewed as sons of God, believe it or not. Scripture says that. Why? Because sons receive the inheritance. In the kingdom of God, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Jesus is the only way, and he has made a way. And that message is the main thing that John suffered for. Are you willing to suffer for it too? You better get mentally ready for it. I don't think everyone in this room is going to be passed on by the time persecution comes, real persecution. Maybe a lot sooner than even I think. In order to stand with Christ, you must first be in Christ. And according to Ephesians 1.13, you do that by believing in Him. And that starts in the heart, but it manifests with confession with the mouth. And it leads to turning from sin to God, being baptized, and walking that kingdom road. So if you haven't done this, would you do that today? Can you do that today? Can you make that choice